The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. God, our Creator, when you speak, there is light and life. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may listen to one another, speak the truth in love, and bear much fruit in the service of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, we've kind of fallen with what we've done in the last, or the better part of the last five or six years, not every year, but doing something that relates to the Advent season. Um, a couple of years ago when we were doing Luke, we held, we didn't start with the first part of Luke. We jumped over and did the Christmas story during this time of year. Um, but um, today, as we celebrate a new liturgical year, I guess I should say Happy New Year. If I'm not mistaken, it's Year B, is that not correct, Coffee? You tend to be the uh, keeper-upper of... I've got it somewhere in the back, yeah, I think. I think it's... liturgist. Yes, uh, I think it's B, okay. uh, but... Uh, Years, year B begins Advent of 14. That's this year. So uh, we're in liturgical year B, so if uh, you want to follow the Sunday readings, uh, that's where you start. We, um, I mentioned last week, John and I talked that we would uh, do something related to all the lessons that are in the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. The, generally, when we've done something related to them, we've done it the fourth Sunday in Advent, gone through selected ones that John and I just randomly pick, but always ending with uh, the ninth lesson, which is John 1, 1 through 14. But we thought we'd spend a little bit more time on them this year. So we're going to, this week and next week, do the four Old Testament lessons. And then the following Advent 3, we'll do four of the five um, New Testament lessons with uh, Advent 4 being any uh, catch-up we need to do, but emphasis on Lesson 9, which here again is John 1, 1 through 14. The, the service is now most closely associated with Christmas Eve at King's College, uh, Cambridge. The chapel there, uh, I just found this to be kind of interesting, is that Henry VI had the chapel built, and as part of the statute of doing the chapel and giving it to the college, uh, it requires that there be 16 trebles, <laughs> choristers, and then the rest are uh, now days uh, undergraduates uh, or the other 14 voices. But, uh, you know, this goes back to 14 uh, hundreds. Uh, when um, Henry VI was king. The original service uh, was adapted from an order drawn up by E.W. Um, Benson, who later became the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he wanted something for his um, service in Christmas Eve of 1880. <laughs> his cathedral at the time was a wooden shed, Stop what you normally think of in the 1800s of English cathedrals, but uh, apparently it was, I hadn't looked at the history, but I found that interesting. The idea of the service, though, and it, it says, is the pattern and the strength of the service 
as uh, Melner White points out, and he was the guy who in 1918 came up with the pattern and the lessons that are the traditional, I'll call them, uh, that or the traditional line, nine lessons. He says, the main theme is the development of the loving purpose of God seen through the windows and the words of the Bible. And so a lot of times when we have that service, a lot of people as much come to hear and enjoy the music, which is good and fine and enjoyable, but the purpose is to hear the story. Uh, and, and if you've ever been to one I, I, that does all nine lessons and have listened to um, on Christmas Eve the BBC uh, live, I won't call it recording, but live broadcast of the service that uh, NPR does and WBHM picks up and uh, plays it live and then they usually do a repeat later on uh, Christmas Eve day. But in the bidding prayer, it even focuses on that. It says, let us read and mark in Holy Scripture the tale of the loving purposes of God from the first days of our disobedience through the glorious redemption brought us by His holy child. And it forces, and then it says, um, it has prayers, and it, part of the prayer of praying for I, I find interesting, but I think it's a lesson to all of us. And it prays for things that you, you know, the poor and the helpless, the cold, the hungry, the oppressed. But it also adds in, all who know not the Lord Jesus or who love him not or who by sin have grieved his heart of love. And, you know, that's that here again helps us point to the story of what the lessons are trying to bring to us and share with us. Um, you know, this particular set of two lessons, the two we're going to do, and I passed around and I passed them around, and they're in the King James Version, which here again by tradition is the version that is read in the service. Um, and so I thought if we're doing it, let's do it. Um, and... We came up with, and I say we, it's more John. The, today, it's you know our rebellion, God's response. And that's what we see in Genesis. Uh, the first lesson, which we'll read in a second, has to do with our rebellion. Then we start working through the second lesson in Genesis and more so into uh, next week into Isaiah, what God's doing and what he's pointing to. And so, as we go through this, um, and I'm going to read because some of the places in that I've seen, this, what you have in your hand, has um, Genesis um, chapter 3, verses 8 through 15, and then 17 through 19, but 16 is just as important, and some I've seen have done it, so when we do this again, I will get that corrected, but... So, since I have 16 here in front of me, and uh, I've got a version of the King James, which Coffee said he's never seen a uh, King James version with the Apocrypha. So, uh, they're hard to find. But, reading from uh, chapter 3, starting with verse 8. 
And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee thou shalt not eat? And the man said, The woman who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me the tree, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The servant beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done uh, this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, thou shalt return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, and for dust thou art, and unto dust thou return. This is a real estrangement from God. Um, we see the evil power using God's creation as a voice of temptation. And human beings' act of choice can stand against the authority of God. You know, it's, it's, it's the serpent took what God had made and... The first part of chapter 3 talks about the serpent challenging Eve, Eve's response, Eve's action, Adam's response. And, you know, so he starts with he being the serpent with what God had created. You know, a lot of times uh, I've used particularly a uh, quote from the Merchant of Venice where it says, you know, even the devil can quote scripture for his own purpose. Well, the serpent was using what God had made to then twist in to the uh, Eve and then to Adam. Hey, it's okay. You know, God created it, but, you know, it's okay if you need it. Look at it. It's a nice looking apple. I mean, that's what we traditionally talk about is the fruit of that tree. And you know, took that choice to go, yeah, that does look like a good apple. I'll eat it. And you know, it was a juicy apple, so shared it. But that was a choice that then violated 
what God had told them not to do. That was a choice that was made. You know, I, I was thinking here that sometimes when people are confronted with a choice uh, of something, they pick one versus the other without thinking a lot of times, and then sometimes we come to expect choices. You know, I got to pick which I wanted, so, hey, I picked. Initially, it seemed okay, and then so, you know, you learn to, I need a choice here, I need a choice there. But Eve chose to disregard, and Adam chose to disregard what they were told. Thou shalt not eat. And in doing so, as I said, they went against the authority of God. And so the blessing then becomes a curse. Uh, in verse 1 of that chapter, it talks about the servant being more crafty, but then we read that he tells him, you're cursed. And we come to accept that the serpent was the devil or Satan. In Revelations chapter 12, verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So, you know, that is Satan that is now challenged Eve. Eve accepted the choice. And so the certain the serpent being crafty, is cursed. And so at this point, you know, you, we have to believe that the serpent could walk. That would be more in line with the dragon that's talked about in Revelations because if you're being condemned or cursed to uh, be on the ground always, then that kind of somewhat implies that you have legs. And... Um, so you can't <laughs> can't walk anymore. You know, its head will be bruised as more serious than the heel bruising. Now, in chapter 15, that is viewed and it's considered proto-evangelium. Did I say that right? Proto-evangelium. Thank you. This is the viewed as the first reference to what we consider and understand to be the gospel of what Christ did, or excuse me, what God did to bring us back from rebellion. In that it speaks to what is to happen. It is um, singular, and so that would tend to, you know, the he and his is singular, so it's viewed as that is a specific person. And that specific person whose heel will be bruised is Christ who will bruise and effectively kill the serpent, the devil, the dragon, as we talked about or read through in Revelations. And so those blessings, the ground, the 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 garden that man was living in was a blessing. They were cast out of it, so they were cursed. The ground that they were using and would grow from, man would be you know, frustrated. 
uh, it wouldn't necessarily grow what we want, how we want. You know, it's we don't get the yield a lot of times that we want. I mean, how many times do you go out even to your flowers and you see there's a weed over there and, you know, you spend what started off as, oh, there's a weed, I'll pull it up, and then the next thing you know, you're spending 30 or 45 minutes. Or in our neighborhood, Joyce sits out, and we've got a neighbor who uh, takes it upon herself to weed the flower beds and trim hedges, which sometimes she brutalizes. But, um, you know, Joyce will weed the flower beds up front of uh, our neighborhood as it comes in off Rocky Ridge, but, you know, that's a lot of work. And so that's part of this curse. You know, the, before the flowers would have just been there and they would have kept going on their own. But now we have to work the soil. We don't get what we want. So it's that frustration of not having, having the needs that we have not met. I planted a new kind of lettuce that died in the frost two weeks ago. So, so we can all relate. Yeah. Another example that is that, you know, we don't have what God initially provided to Adam because the ground has been cursed. It was plentiful in the garden. They had everything they needed. And now we have to work for it. You know, here again, the harmonious relationship between man and nature has been disrupted. It's not what was at creation planned. It was not what was provided for man. And then he tells Adam, you'll die and you'll return to the earth. You know, dust thou art to dust returnest. Now that's the physical death. Because when we talk about here, that man died, that that was the spiritual death in the relationship with God. And they, it, it was broken. And at some point in time, that natural relationship uh, will be, um, be restored. In Romans, which we talked about um or read about a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That, you know, death came back or life came back through Christ's resurrection and life that he lived, that he died, he arose, he ascended. And so that's where through Christ we've now died to sin. It helped restore us to the relationship that God planned all along. Death has now been conquered. It's not that our physical bodies won't die, but our spiritual bodies will live because of what Christ has done. And then, as I started saying, uh, nature was, is set free from the um, relationship that was caused, that was broken 
because of human sin, um, it'll be ruled by glorified humans. In uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And when it says by the revealing of the sons of God, by the revealing of the believers of God, you know, so creation here again, nature will be restored to that place that God intended for man and nature to reside in. And so he's bringing us back through Christ, and that's a lot of what we've been talking about in Romans is how Christ's death and resurrection has freed us from the bondage of sin that was created by the choices that were made in the garden. Then we go to a promise, looking at Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. And if someone... uh, Coffee, you or Mike tend to be my <laughs> best volunteer, so if one of you would. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gates of the enemy. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Thank you. This is after Abraham has taken his son Isaac up on the mountain. The two of them um, went up to worship God. Um, Abraham had been told to sacrifice his son um, Isaac to use him as a sacrifice and Abraham was doing it. They had set out Abraham and Isaac and two servants to head to the mountain. And then they got to the mountain and Abraham told the servants to wait here and the two of them went up. Now, you know, it says God. And by myself have I sworn. Now, here, God is swearing a covenant. You know, before, earlier in. Genesis, God had told Abraham to go to this place. I will show you where to go. You know, leave where he was and what we now know as Iran and head to a land where I'll show you to go. And it was just do it. Now, 
God is swearing a covenant. Normally, when an agreement is made, it's between two people who likewise agree to it. And, you know, yes, I affirm this contract, say. In this case, Abraham's not asked to do anything. It's God saying, I'm I myself have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now, at this point, Abraham, had had, Isaac was his second son. But Ishmael, who was born of the servant girl, the maiden of Sarah, had, they had been sent off. And to do this, God had already told him that he would make him you know, a person of uh, great importance. And so he had also promised Abraham and Sarah a son. So to be told to go and use him as the sacrifice takes a great leap of faith on Abraham's part. But Abraham, knowing that God said, you will have your own heir, your chief servant that's head of your household will not inherit. Your own blood will inherit. Well, if Ishmael's been sent off and he's to use Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham knows that the promise that God has made requires that there be an heir that's his own blood. So he's trusting in God at that point to move forward. And so when God sees his faith, he says, stop. You know, Adam shows that faith. And so he, being Abraham, now hears from him about that which God is going to do to him. I will bless thee, and in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sands which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You know, it's thy seed shall possess the gate of thy enemies. You know, the gate is where the enemies would come and go. And if I possess the gate, I control the gate. So I keep them from getting out. I effectively have, you know, we think now of an army, I've sieged them and it's just a matter of time before they're captured. Well, here the gate is secure. It is possessed by Abraham's heirs. And he's using here again singular The seed, particular seed, shall possess the gate of his singular enemies. That's Christ. We know that now. When it was being told to him, he didn't, Abraham, necessarily understand. And if you just read Genesis, you might not understand. But here again, that's reading the whole Bible to see where we go from rebellion to the response to the gift 
of grace that we have through Christ. And so it moves, and we see that going. And Paul insists in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul is helping bring that circle back in and closing it. That offspring that he is talking about is Christ. Now, Genesis as a whole really starts tracing that line, which to the Jews was very important, so that as a Jew you could claim Abraham as father. And they saw Abraham as father because of blood. And they, it was important to them to trace back. So while there are a lot of stories in Genesis and whatnot, there is a lot of story of what is carried forward. That thou seed. And, you know, we can go all the way back to, to Adam and the, uh, there are two genealogies um, in the New Testament, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And one in Matthew goes all the way back to um, David. The one in Luke goes back to Adam. And so we see that offspring. We see the continuation of what is talked about, the lineage, all through Genesis, in the Gospels, traces all the way back. And here he says, And thou say, and in thou seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations. So here again, it's not just the Jewish nation that is receiving this promise. It's all nations. All believers are receiving this promise that comes from what God told Abraham on the mountain. Half-brothers, yes. Sons of Abraham. And isn't a- a- Ishmael considered the father of the, of the Muslims? They, would tr- they, they view Abraham, the Muslims view Abraham as father Abraham also because of Ishmael. Okay. So Ishmael was a direct ancestor of Mohammed, is that correct? That, I don't think so. Well, Mohammed wasn't born until 600 A.D. Right, but I mean, he, he's a revered... I think he's more viewed as a prophet, like a prophet. Okay. But Abraham is, is considered the father. They still would case back to Abraham. Now the Muslims believe that Abraham took Ishmael to the mountain to offer him sound like this. Oh, really? In fact, they celebrate that. That was just a festival about three or four weeks ago. That's when they offer a sacrifice where all this blood runs in the street and every family has a lamb and they... It's a very big deal, and the, the meat is given out to the poor, but it's 
with the remembrance of Vishnu going up with Abraham, not Abraham. Well, where, where do, do they do they see Ishmael? Do they uh, recognize him as, as being the son of Abraham and, and his servant? They see him as the son and the and the main guy. The, mer- the firstborn. They see him as the firstborn. How do they? How do they? View, I mean, this is this is not your main idea. But how do you? How do they view God and the fall? I mean, it's the same person. I don't think it is. No. I mean, but they they're God. Yeah. Is the prophet. <coughs> yeah. God is God. God is it. Well, I don't think. Muhammad <coughs> no. is not prophet. Yeah. No, no, no. But is is Allah the same as God? No. <coughs> absolutely yeah. not. Well, I Discussion for another day. <laughs> um, <laughs> Next week, we'll go into, there are two lessons from Isaiah, and if half time, I'll also bring in, because uh, I uh, checked with um, Fred Tirado, a couple of weeks ago about, I know sometimes there are some lessons that are not part of these nine, and he shared with me two different lessons from Isaiah that are used. And so those may be, I, I don't know the lessons that will be read next week at um, the choir's um, lessons and carols, which is primarily our service next week. Um that will be used and, and said, but they may or may not be these other two. So time um, allowing, we may talk about more than just the two lessons that are part of what I call the traditional nine lessons and bring in others. And I think Fred said that there are some that are listed um, in the liturgy for during the Advent season. So here again, that's why they would be read, because here again, they point to Christ. Here's a question. It just, it just suddenly struck me. God asked for the sacrifice of the firstborn. Then he rejected that sacrifice. He said, don't do it. He, he, relieved, he relieved Abraham of the necessity of sacrificing the firstborn. In biblical history, there are cults within the Jewish tradition that sacrifice the firstborn of everything, their children, their cattle, etc. Is this an early rejection of that cultic sacrifice or a prohibition of that early cultic sacrifice? Or is that stretching I the don't, point? Well, I don't think that God, in the traditional sense of we think about rejecting Isaac at the sacrifice. He relieved. He, he relieved, relieved the, burden. I, I, I the relieved the burden. The burden of and, sacrificing the firstborn. You know. You know. It's, you know. A lot of people think sacrificing the sacrifice appeases the gods, and you know, God the Father that we know and love and appreciate. And are thankful for that's not that's not him. I understand that, but I, I what I'm saying is this is this the first 
statement that says, wait a minute, guys, you got this wrong. I do not require this. This is not in my scheme of things for my chosen people. Well, that's hard to say because Moses in maybe Deuteronomy or Leviticus would talk about sacrifices in the temple and what and how to do. So, but I mean, the point I'm trying to make is the firstborn of all. You know, Isaac was the firstborn of Abraham and Sarah, not Ishmael. Ishmael was, was the firstborn of Abraham, but not of Sarah. Right. A legal, a legally, a legally constituted union of man and a woman. And well, here again, but here again, Moses would have said, you know, some of the sacrifices made in the temple when sacrifices were still before Christ came were, you know, the firstborn lamb, which was viewed as the most pure. Well, the lamb without blemish. Yeah, but that tended to be the firstborn. But again, your question, it, it could be. Well, there are still cults that practice it. There are still cults out there that, that, that do that. Well, there, there were there. in the Bible, and it's a continual. And I'd have, to, I'd have to do some deeper research when I pull up the snap of a finger. But there were cults that sacrifice the firstborn male child. And that is where the bodies were burned in the in, uh, Gehenna, the, the valley known as Gehenna, which is the, 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 uh, the, in essence the dumping grounds outside of Jerusalem where the fires burned eternally from the, 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 the sacrifices and, the, and essentially the garbage of Jerusalem. Well, as I say, next week we will uh, pick up. <laughs> we will pick up with Isaiah, and uh, until then, have a great week.